Good morning, Castleton Church family. So good to be together. And if you're visiting with us or new with us, you may be wondering why I'm on this video screen and not in the room with you. Um, that's uh, a result of uh, asthma, an asthma condition that I have related to this COVID season. And uh, we as a church are doing the best we can to bear each other's burdens. So um, I know it's not ideal, but uh, I hope you'll be able to hear God's word preached and be helped by it. You've joined us in the middle of a series we're calling Biblical Unity in Diversity. It's a journey we're going on together as a church to arrive at a unity, even when we have differences on so many matters. We want to be united in the gospel. Uh, the first two weeks, we looked at the matter of Christian conscience, how important it is to consider your own conscience as well as the conscience of other Christians in matters where we should be able to disagree. If you haven't uh, listened to those messages yet, I, I really encourage you to go back and do so. You can find them on our website or our podcast. Uh, this series is meant to be listened to in order. It's a complicated enough topic that they build on each other. So uh, you may have some questions that are already been answered in those first two messages you can find online. Uh, this morning, we turn our attention to uh, a topic that I've gotten more than a few questions from people over the last couple of weeks. It's uh, how do we know the difference between an essential matter and a non-essential one? How, how do we know what fights are worth having? Now, I don't imagine that I'll be able to answer all of those questions this morning, but I hope that at the very least we'll have some categories from God's Word that'll help us as a church to make these sort of judgments well. But I want to also let you know that there will undoubtedly be questions I don't answer, and I want to give you an opportunity to ask those questions. So next Sunday night at 5 o'clock, we are going to have a prayer meeting as well as a Q&A session where we will have uh, a chance to answer some of the questions that I haven't been able to get to in the sermons. So um, make time for that Q&A meeting. Come join us. Pray for the unity of our church and let's all come together on this journey toward biblical unity in diversity to the glory of God. Our passage this morning that we'll read is from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. This is what Scripture says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you have been, are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. It's only fitting with such a weighty topic that we begin by asking God's help. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord Jesus, your bride comes to you now asking for your help. Would you wash us with the water of your word? Would you allow us to have our minds transformed by the very word of God? Give us the ability to make right judgments, to know what are the essentials of the faith and what are the things that we should not divide over 
the things that should not come between our fellowship. Help us to do this so you get all the glory. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. One of the most high stakes places you can find in our society is undoubtedly the ER in your local hospital. There are decisions being made on the fly that are literally life and death. But consider the different reactions someone gets as they walk into the emergency room. Uh, consider good old Bo who comes in with a broken toe. He's going to get told, sorry Bo, have a seat. You might be a little while before a doctor gets around to seeing your owie. But what about the other, on the other matter, what about if uh, good old Jack comes in and it looks like he's having a heart attack? Well, all of a sudden, doctors and nurses will come out of the woodwork to try and save Jack's life. Why is that? Why do some resources get deployed immediately and others not so much? Well, it's because of something called triage. There's only so many doctors, there's only so many nurses, and that means those matters that are most important, the life-threatening ones, need their attention. Hospitals and medical professionals do triage all the time. But have you ever considered that it's necessary to do triage as a church? Turns out that there are some parts of the Christian life that are more important than others. Uh, Dr. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, um, coined the phrase theological triage. It's the work of discernment that Christians do as they try to figure out what is most essential, most worthy of their attention, and the things that are less important, non-essential, maybe not even worthy of their attention. Dr. Moeller puts the matter for us very succinctly. He says it this way, we must develop the skill of discerning different levels of theological issues in order that we not divide over the wrong issues and betray the gospel. But when the issues are of the first order, we must be clear and determined lest we lose the gospel. That's a a pretty tall order Dr. Moeller puts in front of us. And unless you think he's just making that up from uh, somewhere in his head, uh, the passage we read, 1 Corinthians 15, did you notice there, there's a matter that is of first importance? By, by implication there, it means there are matters that are of second or third importance. There are things that are less important. Now, the, the stakes are pretty high because we have biblical, man, biblical commands on two sides. On one side, we have the passage that we looked at the last couple of weeks, Romans 14 and 15, where we're told not to quarrel unnecessarily over these non-essential matters. To do so could actually destroy the faith inside a church. But on the other hand, you have passages like Jude 3. Jude 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints. So on one hand, Romans 14 says, don't fight or you could destroy faith. On the other hand, Jude 3 says, contend for the faith, fight or the very faith itself could be lost. When you put those things together, we come to this realization that to have biblical unity we must be able to know what are the fights worth having. 
There are times where a Christian must stand and not give an inch, and there are times where we must be open-handed. How in the world do you tell the difference between the two? Well, this morning, that is our task before us, and we'll look at four different categories that will help us think through these issues. To do this theological triage as we consider what the Bible tells us we must do and how we live as Christians. Those four different categories are as follows. First, are tier one issues. Those are matters that are essential for salvation. Matters that are essential for salvation. Second, are tier two matters. Those are matters that are required for fellowship. Matters that are required for fellowship. Third, are tier three matters. Those are matters that are needed for conscience. Matters that are needed for conscience. And then fourth, are jagged and straight line issues. Jagged and straight line issues. Let's begin with that first one, tier one, matters essential for, for uh, salvation. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 already tipped us off to the fact that the gospel is going to be central to this idea of things that are essential, the things of first importance. But how exactly does that happen? What, what aspects of the gospel or what considerations about the gospel lead us to that? Uh, author Gavin Ortland, in his book, What Hills to Die On, um, lays out two different categories that I've adapted slightly that I think are very helpful. The, the first are things that are needed to define the gospel. Things needed to define the gospel. You can think of a passage like Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Paul said, uh, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Well, Paul is more than a little bit worked up here. And what's the big deal? Well, there was a group of Christians or people who called themselves Christians known as the Judaizers. They were going around telling people that they had to do a certain thing, that is be circumcised in order to be right with God. Paul is able to look forward and see the spiritual cliff that the church is about to drive off. If this teaching goes unchecked, then the very gospel will be lost. Because after all, salvation is by faith alone, not by works of the law. This is, uh, Galatians 1 shows us that the, the stakes are so high that the failure to um, protect the gospel in this way, to make sure it's defined clearly, actually results in a completely dis different gospel altogether. So what you can say for the definition of the gospel is that anything that's needed for you to be able to coherently present and call people to faith and repentance in Jesus, anything that's needed for that core Christian message is part of this definition of the gospel. So certainly salvation by faith alone, like in Galatians. You can think of the Trinity. 
The necessity of the Father sending the Son, the Son accomplishing the Father's will, the the Spirit then applying the things that the Son has bought on the cross, the the Trinity, without it, you can't make sense of the the gospel message itself. Or or you can think of substitutionary atonement, of Christ bearing our sins on the cross in our place. Or you can think of the resurrection, The necessity of Jesus conquering death in order to bring us the new life and eternal life that he promised us. Or or you can think of the new birth itself. The taking out of the old heart of stone and putting in the new heart of flesh. The making someone a new creation in Christ Jesus. All of these things are needed to define the gospel. And that makes them tier one essential issues. But There's also another category we need to think of. Not just things needed to define the gospel, but things needed to defend the gospel. Acts 17, 1 to 3 shows us a good example of this. I'll read it briefly. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. We see Paul here in the middle of evangelism and apologetics, and he does so on the basis of authority, the authority of the scriptures themselves. If you remove the scriptures from the equation, you remove the authority for us to call people to believe in Jesus and repent of their sins. That means that you can't defend the gospel if you throw out the inerrancy, the truthfulness of scriptures, or, or the authority, the binding nature of the scriptures on everything related to life and conduct. When you think of things that are needed to defend the gospel, you can also think of those boundary markers between Christianity and other world religions. Uh, take, for example, your Muslim neighbor. Your Muslim neighbor will probably tell you that they believe in Jesus. They just believe in a very different Jesus than the Bible teaches about. They believe in a Jesus who's merely a prophet. In order to be able to evangelize your Muslim neighbor, you need to be able to make the distinction from the Jesus who's merely a prophet and the Jesus who is both God and man mysteriously united in the God-man Christ Jesus. You need the, the very dual nature of Christ to be a part of your theology. That means that there are some doctrines needed to defend the gospel. Inerrancies, things related to the, uh, the natures of Christ, etc. They're distinctive and they allow us to cross uh, the, the boundaries uh, with evangelism and apologetic conversations. Now, it should be noted that tier one issues are exactly the sort of issues that are worth fighting over. That to not fight over a tier one issue that's in danger is in fact to lose the faith altogether. A great example of this is someone in her, her church history called Athanasius. Back around 300 years after Christ, there was a great debate raging in his day. It was something called the Arian controversy. To, to many people, it might seem like just people quibbling over doctrine, but Athanasius understood it was much, much more than that. 
The, the, the Arians were saying that Jesus was not truly God, that he was a, a created being, an, an exalted created being in some sense. And Athanasius saw that if this doctrine were lost, that the very Christian faith would go with it. At one point, the vast majority of the Christians in his time had come to think that Athanasius was in the wrong, that he was a heretic. And someone appealed to him saying, Athanasius, don't you realize the whole world is against you? And Athanasius, with all the courage and conviction you can imagine, responded, okay then, Athanasius versus the world. That's the way a Christian should respond with a tier one issue, with courage and conviction. These are the sort of issues that Christian martyrs down through the ages have willingly given their lives over to make sure that the purity of the gospel was maintained and the definitions of the gospel were clear. We must be willing to, with courage and conviction, pick fights over tier one issues. You might say tier one issues are the difference between Christians and non-Christians. That's what makes them so essential. But there are other types of distinctions of doctrine, ones that are not between Christians and non-Christians, but still important distinctions. And what do we do with those? That's what we see in our second category, tier two matters. Matters required for fellowship. Matters required for fellowship. Tier two matters are doctrines in which there can be sincere disagreement among true Christians that will inevitably result in difficulty if they try to remain in close fellowship. It, these are the sorts of things that result, rightly, in different churches, different denominations, different networks. Because if they did not separate, they would inevitably run into matters of conscience again and again and again. I have a little bit of history on this one. I was, uh, came to the Lord in a Southern Baptist church. But after I sensed a call to ministry, I ended up attending a Presbyterian seminary. Uh, my reasons for it was I needed to be able to work in my local church, stay local. And when I looked at the conservative theological seminaries in town where I could get the degree I needed, the Presbyterian seminary had a corner on the market. There wasn't anyone else. So I was happy to be able to have a seminary I could go to. And yet there was a bit of tension as I went to that seminary. I, I quickly found that while we agreed on the essentials, the matters of salvation, all the things that are in tier one, that there were some things that we didn't agree on. Particularly the issue of baptism came to the forefront. I, I read lots of books. I heard all their scriptural arguments. I had wonderful conversations with brothers in the Lord over this topic. They were convinced that children of Christians should appropriately be baptized. They didn't think that saves them or removes original sin like a Roman Catholic might, but they thought that that was the implication of what the Bible taught on the topic. I, I have to say, over time, I came to a firm conviction that I thought that they were wrong. And as a result, you may notice I'm pastor of a church here that is not a Presbyterian church. I'm a credo-baptist, and that means I think that only people that are able to give a credible profession of faith are those who should be baptized. And last I checked, I've yet to meet an infant that can do that. That doesn't mean I don't think they're Christians. 
But it does mean that I could never serve in a Presbyterian church or any church that required me to do pedo-baptisms. That's not the only sort of issue like that. There are lots of tier two issues, the issues that make Christians incompatible to be in the same church together, even as they realize that they are members of the same kingdom and are preaching the same gospel. You could think of matters like women in ministry. Does a church think that women should be allowed to be pastors and elders, or do they think that the scriptures don't allow that? It'd be very difficult for a congregation where half of them think they should and half of them think they shouldn't to remain united. Or what about churches that think that the only appropriate songs to sing are the very words from the scriptures themselves? They, they say that God gave us the Psalms as his hymn book. And what, what other words are fit for worship from God except for the words that God has given us? If you held that conviction, you'd have a really hard time worshiping in a church like ours where we sing amazing grace and we do it to the glory of God. Or, or what about house churches? People that think that the biblical model is for very small groups of believers to meet in homes, and that's the, how, the nature and structure of the church. It, it, you have a very hard time having a conviction like that and being a part of a church like ours that owns a building and has paid staff. So how do you spot a tier two issue? Well, first, you make sure it's not a tier one issue. If it's not a tier one issue, then you can ask yourself, could a church be united on this thing if they disagree on it? Or would it almost inevitably result in fights and disunity? If so, then it is squarely a tier two issue. Now, realize that tier two issues, there are answers to these things. It's not that it's impossible to come to what the Bible says, but we have to be frank. There are some matters that are less clear than others. And so it's right for us to make room to gladly allow other Christians to come to a different conviction on this in a different fellowship as long as we ourselves in our church keep our consciences clear on this matter. There's a third tier, and those are matters needed for conscience. Matters needed for conscience. That is that as long as they are sincerely held convictions as Christians try to live according to the Bible before the Lord, that Christians should be able to disagree with each other peaceably in the same church. Uh, again, this is because not all matters in Scripture are equally clear. Some matters are so ambiguous or not addressed at all to the amount that there is Christian freedom that we should be able to extend each other even if we come to differing opinions on the matter. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this because the last two sermons have been about tier three issues. So again, if you haven't listened to those first two sermons, uh, I'll, I'll direct you there. Go listen to them and see how important it is to understand your own conscience and the conscience of fellow Christians. Uh, some doctrines that would fit into this squarely would be, how do you interpret difficult passages in the Bible, like Revelation 20, having to do with that millennial reign of Christ? Are you premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, or like a seminary professor of mine said he's panmillennial, that's to say it's all going to pan out in the end, so he's not going to worry about it. Or, or what about the questions that are a little more practical, like should a, 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 must a Christian keep Sunday as the Sabbath? Or what Bible translation should we use? 
Who wrote the book of Hebrews? How do you understand Antichrist in the Bible? Now, none of these things are unimportant, but none of them are the most important. And, and that means we need to form convictions before the Lord, and we need to leave lots of room to differ peaceably and charitably to Christians who disagree with us. Well, there's one more category that doesn't fit into these tiers that's still really important for us this morning. It's the category of jagged and straight line issues. Jagged and straight line issues. Uh, I know many of you have picked up this little red book, um, How Can I Love Church Members with Different Politics by Jonathan Lehman and Andy Nasali. I, I highly recommend this book to you. You can pick it up at our book wall. Um, one of the things that that book very helpfully puts in front of us is this concept of jagged and straight line issues. Uh, a straight line issue is something that goes from a clear Bible principle straight to something in our lives today. There are some issues where the Bible clearly teaches the principle and there is a clear application for us as Christians that we are all bound to by the authority of the Bible. For instance, the Bible forbids murder and the Bible teaches that everyone is made in the image of God. And that means Christians must oppose abortion. Or, the, or about the, uh, the, the prohibitions against violence and hatred and favoritism. You put those together, you realize that it is impossible for a Christian to support racism. The fact that the Bible tells us that we must be truthful means that as we apply for jobs, as we go about our business in the market square, as we talk with our neighbors, or as we make an oath in a court, we must tell the truth. Or the Bible's teaching on sexual purity leads us to say that adultery, premarital sex, pornography, all these things are off limits. The things the Bible teaches about gender and marriage, as unpopular as they are today, they, they show us that Christians must oppose homosexuality as well as the transgender movement. Now, we, we do those things, we draw those lines because the Bible is clear on them. And down through church history, there's been virtual unanimity on all of these things. And Christians don't have the right to just edit the Bible when it's inconvenient to them. To break these straight line issues, to go against them, is to sin. And churches when they have members that are living out of step with one of these clear straight line issues, well with fear and trembling and patience, they will ultimately consider disciplining people that are unrepentant in these areas. Straight line issues are straight from the Bible to our lives where it's clear how to apply and we are bound by the authority of Scripture very directly. On the other hand, not everything falls into that category. There, there's also things that are described as jagged line issues. Those are things where there is not as clear a path from the Bible principle to our lives today where there is more ambiguity and it requires us to use wisdom and prayer and to consider our conscience as we decide how to live faithfully. Think, for example, of parenting. We would all agree that we need to bring up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that Christian parents will be called to account for how faithfully we do that. And yet, the Bible doesn't tell us whether you must put your child in private school or whether they should put them in public school or whether you should homeschool. That's a matter of wisdom and Christian conscience. Or, or what about med medical interventions? 
The Bible teaches you that you're made in the image of God, that you must steward your body. And yet it doesn't tell you what medicines you should take and what medicines you shouldn't. There's a lot of wisdom needed to try and come to that sort of decision. On these jagged line issues, we must realize that decisions are more complex, the applications from the Bible are less clear, and that means Christians have more freedom to disagree with each other on their convictions. We need to, before the Lord, arrive at convictions. As much as the Bible speaks, we are bound to it. And yet, at the end of the day, we need to leave room for others to disagree with us, to come to differing convictions, knowing that these are not matters of highest importance. Now, I've given you a bunch of categories, but it does no good to have all this theoretical stuff and not bring it into the real world. So let's talk about it. How, how do we actually apply this? How, where does the rubber meet the road for us as Castleton Community Church? Well, the first area I'd point you to is our statement of faith. You can think of our statement of faith as a roadmap for how to navigate tier one and tier two issues. If you haven't seen our statement of faith yet, it, uh, you can get it in the next steps after the service. It's also available on our website under our what we believe section. It was a, a document very carefully pre prepared by our elders uh, and vetted and a, a, a voted on by our membership. It's a document that tells us the things that we all agree together we must believe in order to remain in fellowship. We have tried very hard before the Lord to only include, include tier one and tier two issues. There should be no tier three or jagged line issues anywhere in our statement of faith because we understand those to be areas of Christian freedom. I realize how important this is to get this right. Anytime you put together a document like that or try to make determinations like this, you, there are two ditches you could fall into. You could fall into the ditch of legalism or of liberalism. In the ditch of legalism, you make the mistake of adding requirements to the Christian faith that God has not placed there. Uh, very practically, with the categories we've used, it's taking something from a lower tier and inappropriately moving it up to a higher tier. So, for instance, if you take something from tier three and you move it up into the essentials, into tier one, you create a heretical requirement. You, if you say that someone must homeschool their child or they are not a Christian, or if you tell someone that they must use the King James Version of the Bible or they are not a Christian, you have created a legalistic requirement that God has not created and distorted the gospel itself. Uh, the same thing can happen with a tier two issue. If you had that conviction that you should only sing psalms in worship, and you made that a test for who's a Christian and who's not, you have condemned to hell anyone who sings Amazing Grace this Sunday morning. To do this is to distort the gospel. It is a legalistic, heretical thing to do. We must never, ever do it. On the other side, though, there's a twin danger, another ditch of, of liberalism. That's taking things that are essential to the Christian faith and making them non-essential. Now, this isn't talking about political liberalism. This is theological liberalism. It's a defined movement that you can go and read about. 
uh, the, the basics of its error is that it takes things that are essential tier one issues and says they are things that Christians can take or leave. The virgin birth, take it or leave it. Penal substitutionary atonement, take it or leave it. The resurrection for the dead, take it or leave it. In the name of Christian freedom, the problem is it ends up destroying Christianity altogether. It was put very succinctly by Richard Niebuhr. What ends up happening when you go down the road of liberalism? He says, you end up with a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Realize this is not just a theoretical exercise, brothers and sisters. Even in our young church's life, we have had to deal with this very issue. We had to, with fear and trembling before the Lord, after much prayer and pleading, vote out in excommunication two members who abandoned core tenets of the gospel. My prayer is that we never lose the courage or conviction to fight, yes, to pick a fight over a tier one issue, over an essential of the faith. And at the same time, I pray that we never, with God's grace, that we never add requirements to the Christian faith that God himself has not added. One of the considerations when you think about this is our authority together as a church. You realize as a church, we have the authority to bind each other's consciences on tier one, tier two, and on straight line issues, not on everything else. When we as a church sit under teaching like this one, like this sermon, or put together a statement of faith, we are saying you must believe this as a Christian that's a member of our church. We don't have that same authority on all the other things in life, even things that have moral import. Realize that I as a pastor... My authority only goes so far as the authority of the Bible. On a tier one or a tier two issue or a straight line issue, I will tell you, thus saith the Lord. On other issues, I'll either make it clear what is a conviction of mine that Christians can disagree on, or hopefully I'll avoid the issue altogether if it's a mere opinion. And I realize this is one of the reasons why I don't make many announcements of my political opinions. Uh, And trust me, it's not because I lack opinions on any matter. Just ask my wife. I've got more than enough opinions. But I'm very careful to not try and impose my opinions on other Christians, knowing that to do so might be to distort the gospel itself. Politics is a a fraught matter. There's many complexities that go into how a Christian is to live in the public square in uh, subjection to their Lord Jesus. And, And there are many complicated moral judgments that Christians have to make as they make political convictions. Now, as a result, if you come on Sunday, you're not gonna hear me talk very much about things like the Senate filibuster rules or immigration policy, or the rate of taxation in our, in our uh, local jurisdiction. Now, those are all important issues, but they're not things that the Bible speaks directly to. 
realize when we come together as a church, we are coming to recalibrate and bind our consciences to the most essential things, those tier one and tier two issues. Not to force other people to go into conformity on matters on which we should be able to disagree. Now, I recognize the moment we are in, there is a gigantic elephant in the room, right in the middle of a presidential election where our country is more polarized politically than any time in my lifetime. And I realize many of you are anxious about that election, have very strong opinions about it. Some of you are very interested to know what I will tell our church about what they must do related to voting. Let me just clarify this for everyone. I think most matters of voting are a tier three issue. There are tier one issues that plumb into politics. However, there are almost never uh, done in isolation. We, we don't vote usually for individual issues. We vote for platforms and parties, and that makes the whole thing much more complicated. And Christians have different strategies how they go about trying to be faithful in this arena of voting and politics. There's at least three uh, frameworks for voting that as I look at them, I say that's a, a faithful way a Christian could vote. Uh, some Christians look at a single issue, uh, they find a straight line issue and they say, I am going to vote along the lines of that issue. Whatever it may be, I'm gonna find a politician that's gonna make the biggest difference on that issue and before the Lord, I'm gonna vote for that person. That's a, a valid way to think about voting. Other Christians think of looking at the best two options, or you might say the lesser of two evils on the flip side. They, they look at the two major parties, and whatever major candidate is in a presidential election particularly, they, they say, I'm just going to choose the one that I think is going to do the most good and avoid the most harm. And before the Lord, that's a valid way to vote. There's another way to vote that I think is also legitimate, and that's to only vote for things that you believe are not disqualified by your conscience. That is, someone takes all of the tier one issues or the straight line issues and they go through and they say, any candidate or party that violates one of these issues, I, I can't in good conscience vote for. So you eliminate all of the possibilities and whatever you're left with, you're free to choose from. I realize those are three very different ways of going about voting. And that means there's going to be quite a bit of disagreement about how Christians make political judgments. Let's remember, as important as it is to be good stewards in this area, that as Romans 14, 17 told us, the kingdom of God isn't about such matters. The kingdom of God's not about politics. Now, I know there's a lot of unanswered questions related to this, and maybe you come to that Q&A to ask some of them, but I think some things that we can safely say are required of all of us, no matter what strategy we take for voting. We obviously cannot violate our conscience or the authority of the Word of God. We also need to be careful to do so in a manner that doesn't cause a stumbling block to another believer. Let's do this knowing that other Christians will disagree and let's leave them room to act according to their consciences before the Lord. And most of all, let's remember what is most essential and keep our attention on the things that all Christians are united on, the very gospel of Jesus. 
we opened by reading 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, because it so clearly tells us the matters of first importance. And I want us to end in that same place. May God grant us the ability to, with courage and conviction, hold to the essentials and have the discernment to know where to leave room for the matters that are non-essential. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your help, Lord Jesus. We need the mind of Christ to help us, to give us discernment, to be able to know the things that we must pick a fight on, to have courage and conviction to protect and proclaim the gospel. And what are the matters that Christians should be able to disagree on with love and charity toward each other? Oh, Jesus, would you make us into that sort of a church? Would you allow us not to be a church that is united because we think the same way about all things? Allow us to be united because we think the same way on the most important things. Would you keep us from quarreling and fights that are unbecoming for your church? And would you keep us from shrinking back when you do call us to contend for the faith once for all handed down for the saints. Oh Lord Jesus, grant us wisdom and grace as we navigate this difficult time to be a church unified around the gospel. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.